0: Hello, welcome to Book Chat. I'm Carl Hallecker, and with us today is a man who probably needs no introduction, but saying that, it is my honor to introduce Mr. Larry Kane. Larry Kane, as everybody who lives in the Philadelphia area knows, was a broadcast journalist for more than four decades for Philadelphia, and he was a uh, a uh, anchorman for every leading network in Philadelphia. It's quite a record and we're just delighted to have you here today. Great to be here, Carl. Um, Today we're gonna be talking about your book, Ticket to Ride. Fascinating story about uh, you accompanying the Beatles on their 1964 and 1965 tours. And actually, I guess the 65 tour ended about a year before you came to Philadelphia.
1: Yeah, I came to Philadelphia in uh, September of 1966. And I actually traveled with them for a few dates prior to my coming to Philadelphia, okay. I traveled with them to Chicago, St. Louis and New York in 1966 as well, but not the whole tour because I just got out of the service, too.
0: Right. Uh, how old were you in you, 1964 when you went uh, I was to-
1: 21 years old. I was uh, going on 22. Uh, it was a story that I didn't want to cover. I felt it was uh, beneath the dignity of a, of a journalist to want to travel with the band. Little did I know, Carl, you know, that they would be so big.
0: No. Well, let's let's look at that for a second. Why Larry Kane? Why a twenty-one-year-old journalist? How did you get chosen of everybody in the country?
1: Well, I was the uh, news director of a radio station in Miami. Uh, the call letters were WFUN, Fun, Fun of the Sun, the Mighty Seven Ninety, and the program director asked me to write to Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, to try to get an interview with them on their closest stop to Miami on this mega tour they were doing—twenty-five cities, thirty-two uh, days, thirty-three concerts. So I wrote and asked for an interview in Jacksonville at the Gator Bowl. And he wrote back to me thinking that I was a big radio mogul at America, not knowing I was so young. He invited me on the entire tour.
0: Nice. And uh, can you tell us briefly just about the two tours? I mean, how many places, what months did they go and something about the size of the crowds?
1: Well, the first tour started at uh, September 18th, September 19th, 1964 in San Francisco. Uh, Just to give you an idea of how strange the geography was, it went from San Francisco to Las Vegas, up to Seattle, to British Columbia, back to Denver, across the country, uh, to Cincinnati and New York. From New York, it went to Baltimore, Pittsburgh, uh, Detroit, back to Chicago, back east again, up to Boston, south to Florida. It was crazy. So we visited 25 separate cities. Second tour was a little more manageable. It was a little shorter. And there were 15 cities but it was just as exciting because by that point 1965 they had reached a fever pitch a crescendo and uh, they were extremely popular
0: right now along with that uh, you mentioned your book talking about security was a great concern how good or bad was security and can you give us some examples of how bad or good it was
1: security was horrendous you didn't have when you go to a concert today you see uh, people with these um These shirts on that say event staff and security, you know, the big people Mm -hmm, walking around. In those days, they didn't know what to expect. This was only nine months after the assassination of the president, but uh, the security was very light. In some cases, there were 30 or 40 police officers. And I'll give you a couple of examples. At at Empire Stadium in Vancouver, British Columbia, approximately 7,000 of the 28,000 people stormed the stage. And let me tell you, they couldn't have stopped him if they tried. There were 200 broken limbs that night. It was the worst night in the history of the Vancouver Police Department. And the Cow Palace in San Francisco, the same situation. Of course, by the time they got to Shea Stadium in New York, it wasn't as bad. But I got beaten up. I mean, my (laughs) nose was bleeding in San Francisco. I I was uh, carrying a 22-pound tape recorder, Carl. And, uh, you know, we traveled from plane to plane from, it it was a very interesting sequence. You go from plane to limousine to hotel to late night, whatever happened. Uh, And by the way, late night was not as uh, crazy as people might think. We played a lot of Monopoly. I lost, and they would absorb the losses. If I won, they would keep the money. They played for real money, by the way. (laughs) So we had a good time.
0: Great. Uh, Beatles fans, of course, as you mentioned, were fans like none others. Right. Uh, can you describe if the word were typical? How would you describe a t- typical Beatle fan? Well,
1: there are three kinds of Beatles fans. Even today, uh, there were the Beatles fans who were what I call Beetle obsessed. And these were the kids who would sit in the audience and they'd stare at the camera, uh, stare at the stage, and their eyes would start tearing because they were in somewhat of a trance. Their, their eyelids would never move. It was amazing. Uh, they were the fanatics who would do anything to get close to them. Uh, They would dress in uh, housekeeping uniforms and knock on your door in the middle of the night and say, did you call for soap? (laughs) Or things like that. Uh, They were very animated. Then you had the really dramatic Beatles fans who were not that wild about them, but would try to stick around and do it through peaceful means. And then you had the people who just enjoyed their music. There were two types of girls on the Beatles tours, Carl. There were what I call the candy kiss girls, the girls who brought uh, donuts and uh, uh, cakes and uh, pretzels for you because they wanted to meet the Beatles. And then there were the older women who uh, wanted to offer
0: more. Yeah, interesting. Uh, your book is a very good feel-good, happy book. But you know you do mention a very serious part in the book, a, a, an incident where one of the Beatles uh, called you a, a racial epithet.
1: Well, what happened was I was sitting in the plane, and uh, it was the second or third night. And I heard the word that rhymes with the uh, kite, which was a uh, defamatory word concerning Jewish people. And uh, because I am who I am, <clears throat> and I was the way that I was, I got up, roared to the back of the plane, and started yelling at them. And I said something like, I don't know where who it came from, but I won't take any of that so-and-so. And I was shaking. I was so upset by it. And I just am that kind of a person. I've never been, uh, been able to tolerate that. I went back to the, uh, <laughs> the seat, and it was kind of interesting how each one of them came by to talk to me especially lenin and they described some of the seeds of prejudice in uh in liverpool their press secretary claimed he said it but they were really covering up for one of them and i let it go and that was that but it was kind of interesting that these these guys were born with prejudice Uh, they came they grew up in a protestant neighborhood of liverpool no catholics hardly any jews except their young manager brian epstein and very few people of color so for them carl uh they were coming into a new world they were also the same people who told me in Las Vegas, after I brought up the subject to them, that they would not play the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville if it was segregated. So while they were born with their own prejudices and lived through them, they were also pioneers in
0: many ways. Yeah. Um, could you briefly mention something about each of the four Beatles that just stands out in your mind, the way you remember them?
1: Sure, uh, that's pretty easy to do. John Lennon was a man who said in public what he thought in private. Uh, that Can be dangerous, especially for public people, but yet he was a a magnificent stage entertainer who was scared to go on stage. He sweat before each concert. He took medicines. Uh, Sometimes he uh, got very sick. Uh, Paul McCartney, on the other hand, was a man who never met a stage or a mirror he didn't like. Uh, This guy was like a tiger waiting in the grass. He uh, couldn't wait to get on stage. And when I tell you that what he did was almost criminal, the way he looked at those girls and flirting he did and the uh, the way he made love to the audience. He was perhaps the greatest stage entertainer I've ever seen. But on the other hand, he was the quiet Beatle. He really had very little to offer and uh, he was always restrained in his comments. Uh, George Harrison was hardly the quiet Beatle. He had a great sense of humor. He spoke when he felt it was time to speak to him. And, uh, and, I'll, and I'll tell you about Ringo Starr. Ringo Starr was not the goofy Beatle uh, he was very intelligent had a great intellect and a final note on george harrison great sense of humor we're coming in on a foam covered runway in portland oregon because we had an engine failure and he yells out to me larry if anything should happen on this plane it is beetles and children first
0: <laughs> nice so uh they were uh, pretty good guys you got very, like very pleasant much. human beings larry um we were starting to talk about the Beatles, but I, let's focus a little on uh, when you had a very enduring uh, friendship with, John Lennon. Uh, why did this Beatle to you stand out more than the others?
1: Well, I guess there were some similarities in our lives. Uh, he lost his mother at a young age. His mother was struck and killed by a car. Uh, she, he was 15. I was 20, 21 when that happened. Uh, I also felt that there was no superficiality in him. Uh, the others by the way were extremely wonderful to me but uh there was something very real about him he was not afraid to show his uh his frailties to other people and his weaknesses now sometimes it was a little difficult to take because he had some real weaknesses as you probably may or may not know i'm working on a book that's due out next year on his adult life and uh he was a man who uh, was definitely flawed in many ways and and because of that uh he showed the public. He wasn't afraid to show the public his vulnerabilities. I also liked the fel- fact that he was very passionate about what he believed in. I disagreed with a lot of what he believed in. Uh, he was a very caustic guy. He slapped a reporter once. Uh, he could get a little crazy, but he was the leader of the group. And uh, in many ways, he was a born leader who, uh, who I really enjoyed covering. I just liked him. And he did some nice things for me, too. And although we were so different, I mean, I didn't drink. He drank. We both smoked at the time uh and he sometimes smoked other things besides cigarettes uh i i found him to just be a very genuine guy who you could sit down on the plane and talk with and have a really intelligent conversation with
0: great uh, out of all those con- concerts uh, were there any couple that might have stood out in your mind as being memorable
1: well the best concert in terms of sound and i want to tell you something about the beatles that may surprise you if you could hear them if you could listen to them you would realize just how incredibly great they were. Because as stage entertainers, unlike they didn't have the, the, uh, the benefit of strobe lights or flash and trash or the Janet Jackson type of gimmicks or uh, uh, multimedia imagery or the electronics, and they had very, very poor amplification compared to today's modern sound. But when you listened to them and you could hear them, in one case was Atlanta in 1965, you heard just how good they were. And if you really want to see how good they are, watch the Ed Sullivan DVDs. When these guys are performing live, on television, live, uh, yes, rehearsal ahead of time, and the sound, the quality of their sound is so amazing that they, you know, a lot of times you see groups, they sound different than they sound on the record. They never did. But I think Atlanta was a great concert. I loved the Hollywood Bowl concerts because they were so beautiful under the stars. Uh, I think the most dramatic and energized, exciting and electric concert. Was Shea Stadium uh, in uh, New York City in ni- August uh, 1965. Uh, 55,600 people. Uh, you couldn't hear a word they were saying or singing uh, and I think the Philadelphia concert was pretty interesting because it was convention hall and if you remember the old convention hall it had aisles on the side and the kids were just running loose and the Philadelphia police were very concerned because the Columbia Avenue riots had just finished so the city was very tense and when the Beatles came to town, they wanted to, they wanted to protect people. But at the same time, they weren't going to use their nightsticks to beat up little children. So it was a very, very difficult situation. And it was hot. It was steamy. It was wild. It was raucous. It felt like you were in a uh, small nightclub. It was
0: great. great. What, what was the price of a ticket?
1: The price of a ticket in Philadelphia, as you'll see in the book, uh, was uh, 5 dollars 50, 50, and two fifty. Uh, if you compare that to, my, to today's prices, it'd probably be about forty-five dollars, which is still low oh, by yeah. today's standards. Sure. So they did—they treated their fans. I mean, they, they were expensive in those days, mm-hmm. but not as expensive as a lot of other things were.
0: Yeah. Can you tell us a little about the Beatles as a group and even as individuals? How you saw them evolve and mature over the years?
1: Well, when you when you see a child go away to college. Every couple of months, the child comes home and you see them growing each time. So the, the 20s are a tremendous growing period. And when I met them in 1964, they were, uh, they were worldly. Remember, they had been to Hamburg, Germany for some very uh, insidious uh, entertainment where they were involved, uh, lived in the same buildings as transvestites and prostitutes and drug dealers. Uh, they were pretty worldly. And even, you know, not a lot of people don't realize, but when they were in Hamburg, uh, George Harrison was only 17 years old. He wasn't even old enough to play in the clubs. Uh, they were worldly, but they became more sophisticated as the years progressed. In 65, they were more into drug use, but they were also more into philo- philosophical things. Uh, George Harrison was the first person I ever met, the first human being I ever met, who talked to me about being in touch with your inner self. I, never, I didn't even know what he was talking about, uh, about men you know, trying to find their way. Uh, he was very spiritual. Lennon became more and more of a vocal critic of society. McCartney became uh, more independent as the years progressed. And Ringo was appreciated more for his intellect. By 1968, when I visited them in England, uh, they were already, you know, thinking about quitting and breaking up. But I also found that their spirit was very energized because for the first time in their lives, since they were about 18, they weren't touring. They were all about 27, 25 at that time so they can actually write music. And that's when they wrote Sgt. Pepper and the White Album and all the great, great you know, the magical obviously. mystery tour and all
0: yeah, the great music. Absolutely. We're going to need to take a break, but before we go right on break, I do want to show uh, Larry Kane's first book, Larry Kane's Philadelphia, which is published by our friends at Temple University Press. And this is absolutely a great book. Uh, you'll learn not just about Larry, but uh, the whole city for four decades. And of course, the book we're talking about, Ticket to Ride, published by Penguin, one of the premier publishing companies in the, the country, and this book is a real gem too. Not only for the book, but it's accompanied by a CD, which has Larry interviewing the Beatles. Larry, we were talking about the Beatles as uh, individuals in the group as they evolved over the years, but also let's talk a little bit about uh, maybe the more lurid side—not necessarily the Beatles, but how they were covered. How has um, celebrity news coverage changed? You think now from well, it's wide you know?
1: open now. <clears throat> People expect the worst and expect the worst in reporting. And uh, in those days, sexual escapades and uh, strange things were not reported, much like John Kennedy's life in the White House was ignored. So it was kind of a rule and a standard, and that's what you went by. I guess if we're doing it today, it'd be a lot different. Uh, I do talk, this book I want people to know is a PG-rated book. Uh, It's not a child of 11 or 12 can read it very easily. It's Mm -hmm. not lascivious. But it also covers some of the things they did without without a, a... play-by-play description is just a description of what they you know the women they were involved with Uh, remember three of them were single and one of them John Lennon didn't care and uh, so for the first year they were single guys doing their thing Uh, there was very little drug use most of the uh, uh, most of what was consumed was uh, rum and coke real coca-cola I learned a little bit how to drink which I'm not very good at to this day uh, but there was really not that decadent kind of feeling that you would think you'd have on a tour like this. Uh, what they did in their private lives in terms of uh, uh, women was done with people who were of the appropriate age, and uh, they were very, very careful about it. Second tour, there was a, a bit more marijuana uh, around, but it wasn't uh, uh, epidemic-like. And I think one of the things I try to do in this book that I feel is very important Is not to glamorize the drug use. I have strong feelings about uh, the glamorization of drug use by celebrities, which I don't find very attractive. And I'm not trying to be an ultra conservative about Mm -hmm. this. I am saying that uh, drugs have hurt a lot of families in this country and uh, I take it very seriously.
0: Uh, You mentioned some uh, fellow these people in the book uh, long john wade i remember hearing him on the radio do you keep in touch with any of these yeah i can't say where he lives
1: now because he okay. wants privacy but uh long john wade had a had a stroke a couple of years ago he's living comfortably and uh, doing various things in his life uh art schreiber the uh, great reporter that i work with who is a white house correspondent for Westinghouse, mm-hmm. uh, is now living in new mexico and he's uh, he's uh, blind and he's uh, head of the new mexico commission for the blind and uh, Ivor davis a british reporter still working out west and jim staggs who was a dj in chicago who uh, hopped on and off the tour here and there uh, owns a couple of record stores out there so basically uh, i keep in touch and i also keep in touch with what i call the beatles world which is uh, the subculture of people who travel with them and know mm-hmm. them and friends of them
0: so it really was a cause for bonding the uh, two years so, to, to
1: some extent uh, remember that uh, again i always had this stigma Uh, about myself that I was a serious journalist and I didn't want to only be known as the person who traveled with the Beatles, but now I am. So I can't do much about it. (laughs) I'll tell you an interesting story, Carl. I've covered uh, 22 political conventions, the last two this past summer in Boston and New York. Uh, Interviewed every president since LBJ, covered stories in a great, great community like this one. Uh, And yet, the first question out of everybody's mouth is the question that Jimmy Carter asked me Two days before his election defeat to Ronald Reagan, in a live interview at WCAU-TV, Channel 10, now they call it NBC 10, uh, during a break, he leaned over to me and said, Larry, what were the Beatles really like? Hmm. And that's the question I get. So I decided to write a book.
0: Cool. Well, not many people are fortunate to be able to answer that question. No, so, you're right. So that's that's great. I was lucky. Yeah, We're lucky you shared it with us. Uh, several years after the Beatles broke up, John Lennon stopped by to help you do the weather?
1: Well, it's more than that. Uh, he is a man who had a great memory, and he remembered that my mother died of complications of multiple sclerosis. I'm still on the MS board here and mm-hmm. we're very involved in that cause. And I, you probably don't know that about 10,000 people uh, in um, this area uh, deal with MS on a daily basis. Uh, and he found out about that, and we were doing this radio marathon, and he came down to Philadelphia. And guess what? He came by train. We offered to send a limo, and he got off the Amtrak train at 30th Street Station. I took him on a tour of Philadelphia. He spent three days on the air with the DJs at WFL Radio. And then on Friday, he said to me, I'd like to go on the air with you. I said, well, John, uh, I'm on TV now, I do TV news. And uh, he said, I said, I can't just pop you in the middle of a TV newscast. So he said, I'll do the weather. So that night on Channel 6 Action News, May 16th, 1975, John Lennon into the weather, and the weather has never been the same since.
0: Okay. <laughs> it's probably the only time that people didn't complain about it, too. Well, I they mentioned. didn't complain
1: about because they didn't, they didn't hear, understand a word <laughs> he said. <laughs>
0: that was the problem. Uh, another uh, interesting and an enduring feature, to an extent, of, of your book is you really tie in the history of the times with the Beatles, who, of course, very much a part of history. But I found it intriguing. You're talking about the September 64 concert in Dallas in the shadow that the assassination for uh, over that?
1: They were scared to death to go to Dallas. Uh, Dallas in those days was going through its own identity crisis. And this was nine months after the killing of the president. And they were very frightened. And sure enough, their fears were almost realized because their car was almost overturned outside the hotel. And in Dallas, uh, the police sometimes wear their guns kind of out or in their belts. And uh, they saw that and they got a little freaked out about Dallas. Uh, you know, it was it was an evil place for them, although it's a wonderful community that just happened to be the scene of an awful American tragedy. Uh, so they were very afraid of that. And I, I uh, took the time there. They, they decided to go to Arkansas for a little R&R at uh, the ranch of uh, a man who owned the airline. And we stayed back. And I took the time to go to Dealey Plaza and to look at it myself, so it was a very gripping time for me. But Dallas was wonderful. The concert, the kids were well-behaved. There's something that happened in Dallas that I I like to tell people about because it shows you a little bit about the character of these four guys. There was a hotel we stayed in called the Cabana Motor Inn and it was glass enclosed and one morning uh, the kids crushed through the glass and three of the the girls smashed through the glass window. Now fortunately the news photographer's pictures were black and white because it was pretty bad and uh, an hour later the girls had to be treated at area hospitals. I met with John Paul George and Ringo to do an interview session and I told them what happened and all four of them broke down just broke down and uh, it just shows you the affinity they had for their fans the kindness they felt toward them they checked they sent flowers to the hospital they had people check on the kids for weeks after that and they were just people who understood that uh, you know they were this this let's face it 1964 they were just six years away from being a garage man and they they felt for young people, and especially young people who go to that extent to meet them. They didn't think, they really didn't think they were deserving of all that, and they were astounded by the reaction in America.
0: Right. I remember reading a book called The Last Innocent Year by a journalist named John Margolis, and he talks about how the 64 Beatles tour was sort of an anecdote for America following the Kennedy assassination. It was,
1: and I'll tell you something else too. It was really the beginning of, uh, and a lot of sociologist types have taken me to task for this, but I, as far as I'm concerned, it was the evolution of the revolution in terms of the sexual nature of the 60s, in terms of the way people dressed, the way they talked. Uh, remember the girls who were 16, 15, 14, weren't supposed to be ex- displaying their emotions in public in our society. Everything changed, the long hair, uh, eventually it took four or five years, but it happened.
0: Well, things. our interview uh, has gone by so fast. Uh, Let me just ask you, summing up, uh, how do you remember the Tours and what should we remember about the Beatles?
1: I think we should remember that uh, they were people who made us forget an awful tragedy in our lives, uh, that they were uh, subjected to incredible cynicism by adults. My father even warned me, he said, don't travel with them, they're a menace to society. Uh, That uh, we grew up with them, all of us in a different way, and so did the adults that the adults who viewed them as a menace, as my father would say, began to enjoy their music. But most of all, I think we should remember them for one thing, the music, because the music today, unlike much of the music we listened to from a long time ago, sounds as vibrant today as it did 30, 40 years ago. And I think, you know, the, uh, when people always think about the Beatles, they think about the, the hairstyles, the fashion, all the craziness that occurred. But, what they left us with in the bottom line is all those CDs and vinyl and tapes, eight tracks that we still have of, of incredible music that endures and we listen to every day on the radio, and doctor's offices, in our homes and movies, their music is everywhere.
0: Larry Kane, thank you so much thank for you, sharing Carol. your Ticket to Ride with us today. The book is Ticket to Ride, Larry Kane's Adventure Inside the Beatles, 1964, 1965, the tours that changed the world. I'm I'm Carl Hellecker, and this has been Book Chat.